Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. I'm Phil Dark, one of your hosts, Brandon Stiver, my brother in arms. We get to do this together, and it's you know it's been a while since we recorded. I know you guys out there getting your getting your episodes every couple weeks, but Brandon, you know it's been it's been a bit. It's been a bit. We've had Christmas. We've had the New Year. We've had all kinds of stuff going on. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's been about six weeks since we recorded. We did, uh, well, we basically, you know, sold the secret sauce in the last one where we said, yeah, we were watching World Cup today, and then, you know, we released the podcast in January. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it's it's good to get back on with you, man. Happy New Year to all of those that are uh that are joining us uh, wherever you are. Although maybe in Ethiopia, do they have a different New Year? Maybe they know. do. They Come have on, a man. different you're, calendar, you're too, right? You're getting too in the weeds. We're so hap- in the weeds. happy New Year to most of our listeners, at yes. least. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm doing good, man. How about good. you? You were at a conference last week or something, you said? How, yeah. how are things going? I was at the United Soccer Coaches Convention, you know. We're talking about all the how we can blend together and do the different ministries together. So a lot of... The, a lot of stuff there was able to speak on, uh, you know, how we can retain players, motivate players. But that goes to anybody. How can we motivate our people using DISC, uh, model of human behavior, and, and understanding personality styles and all that, you know, which we've used in the orphan care space as well. It's actually how I originally got introduced to it. And um, it was a great week. You know, I was able to do the How Soccer Explains Leadership podcast there, with, you know, had a, had a booth with that. Um, got to, it's kind of a cool concept they did. We might want to think about it at KFO. They had podcast row. So they had like 30 podcasts there that we were able to connect with each other. People came through, they did interviews there. It was pretty cool. So I don't know, just a thought, you know, so, so cool. KFO staff, if you're listening, think about that. It might be a, it might be a cool thing to get all the podcast hosts there so people can see them, know about them and, and know what resources are out there. So I loved it. They were like, it's a little bit bigger than KFO Summit. It's about 12, it was like 12,500, 13,000 people there um, out in Philadelphia. So it was, it was pretty cool. And also, like we're in Philly, right? And then my son's like, hey, can we watch National Treasure, you know, and National Treasure because there's the new series on Disney+. Plus. But National Treasure was in Philly. So I'm like, oh, I was just there. I was just there. I was just there. It was pretty cool. So that was a lot of fun um, and uh, all kinds of other cool stuff. I could talk for an hour and a half on that. We're not going to do that because we have more important things to get to today. In fact, who do we have today, man? Well, we have one of my uh, one of my favorite people within adoption and foster care places. We got Jen Hook on this show today, going to be talking with us about uh, her new book, Thriving Families. Um and uh, she'll introduce herself, of course, but you guys have heard Jen on the podcast uh, before. Uh, she runs Replanted Ministry, um, which does a fantastic conference um, in Chicago. They do satellite, uh, I think, do they call them satellite? Yeah, like uh, Remote, virtual whatever. conferences yeah, virtual and all these conference. different places. But, but we hosted one here in the Seattle area. And uh, we did it in partnership with uh, Michelle Schneidler, who's a, a close friend and mentor and, and has worked with Jen uh, at, at their church up in Sammamish. And uh, my wife and I got to be the hosts for it. And it was just awesome, man. Replanted is just such a cool ministry. Um, Jen does an awesome job leading it and really has that heart, you know, to uh, to serve foster and adoptive and kinship families. So. Uh, I couldn't be more excited when she reached out about sharing about her new book. That's a that's an automatic, you know, as far as I'm concerned, because uh, Jen's Jen's great. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to bringing her in and having her share with us. Let's do it. Hey, Jen, welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. You know, it's it's been a bit since we last talked with you. Um, we were able to uh, have you on with the last book you had, and I absolutely love that conversation. Um, so we just wanted to chat today about your new book, but also before we get into that, there might be some people listening that don't know who you are. There's probably, you know, one or two of them. So why don't you just, you know, real quick, just kind of reintroduce yourself to your audience, and then also just catch us up on what's been going on with uh, Replanted, your, your ministry, since the last time we, we chatted. 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's great to be back again. Um, again, my name is Jen Hook. I am a coffee lover, a former Canadian that lives in Dallas, Texas now with my husband and daughter. Uh, and I am a former therapist for kids in the foster care system. So after I got my master's degree, I did trauma counseling with children three to 18. And then I also did uh, counseling with birth parents who were trying to reunify with their children as well. And it was during that time that my eyes are really open to the realities of the foster care system and to the impact trauma has on our kiddos. Uh, and seeing a lot of parents that had really great intentions, um, really struggling to know how to meet the needs of their kids well. Uh, and so out of that experience, I started Replanted, um, which is primarily a uh, nonprofit organization that provides post-placement support to families. So we help build support groups around the country uh, for parents and kids to have safe spaces to just share their journeys with one another and be supported in that. There's something really powerful when you can you know, share the reality of your journey in a, a tangible way. And someone can say, same here. I know what you're going through. You're like, oh, you're my person, you know, and we want that for our kids too. So uh, we saw benefit in that for our families. We know support is key. And uh, the other thing we do is we host an annual conference each October uh, that is really grounded in emotional, spiritual support as well for our parents, uh, but has tons of informational, like we're, you know, we do a lot of trauma trainings and various things like that. But the whole experience is designed for parents to know you're not alone. Uh, we see you. We love you. We know this journey is hard. Um, but let's, let's link arms together and do this. So that's what I've been up to writing some books on the side. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I just, you said something there real quick, you know, you said former Canadian. Now I know a lot of Canadians and I have yet to ever hear someone say former Canadian. It's not something Canadians disown. Typically yeah. Americans actually put the patch on their backpack when they, you know, backpack Europe because <laughs> we want to, you know, kind of adopt being Canadian because Americans like Canadians more. So is that something that's just I know I feel like no Canadians are going what's going on Jen come on <laughs> I am I am everything Canadian my room okay. I've got right. maple leaves everywhere my coffee mugs are Tim Hort like I literally right here okay. have it have a Tim Hortons coffee yes. mug I drink out yes. of I I import Tim Hortons coffee and pay ridiculous amounts of money so I can experience the nostalgia of home so I am very much Canadian um, I got my dual citizenship a couple months ago so okay. I feel like I need to embrace that side of me but i, I i'll always be canadian 100%. i just good good i actually my my wife is a big she's from minnesota but she has a we have a tim hortons mug in our uh, my wife my daughter went to school in canada for the way i you know i can't claim canadian but you know we have a little bit of taste of canada in our house so yeah i just wanted to clarify that for yeah, you so you didn't get in good. trouble with with our uh you know <laughs> our northern neighbors so there we go yeah <laughs> yes it is really 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 important to clarify that yes and and shout out to our canadian uh listeners we're we're not stealing jen from you uh she's just <laughs> serving both sides of the border um you know it's it, it's great to kind of hear your background jen and uh you know i was just in the intro you didn't hear this but was just raving about replanted ministry and just, uh, you know, the joy that we've had to to come alongside and just support you guys. And I absolutely loved being a simulcast site this last year here in Seattle. Uh, just so much respect. But, you know, you shared a little bit there as far as, you know, your your history as well, not just what you do currently. You know, on Think Orphan, we really love to kind of pull apart systems, you know, that affect foster kids and orphans and vulnerable children and so on, you know, and as you've held a few different roles, you know, in supporting children and family and foster care and adoption spaces, you know, you mentioned that you were a therapist, you know, working with kids in the foster care system, you know, can you share with us about that experience and, and really, you know, what, what people may not realize, you know, being a clinician within that type of space and, and with those children? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and this might even tee, tee us up for another conversation that we're going to have in a couple minutes, but, um, you know, I, I kind of went in thinking like, okay, kids with trauma, I'll do the counseling. We'll help them heal. Um, and I very quickly realized it's so much more complicated than that. Um, I think I naively maybe had some of the assumptions. A lot of people have that, you know, kids have been harmed. They need to come into safe places. The birth parents are bad people. Um, were better options for them. And what I saw was a lot of my kids really struggling with so many feelings. Why won't my mom get sober to get me back? I miss her. I love her. I want to go home. You know, 
just super complicated um, feelings, the tension of loving a birth family and then also falling in love with a foster family and navigating that, being uprooted, separated from siblings. There's compounded trauma when it comes to foster care, not just the initial whatever happened that led to them being in the system. Um, and it really created a empathy and a compassion and a grace for everyone, all, all people involved in the triad. I think too, with foster care, um, you know, God didn't intend for families to be broken. Um, and so the fact that we're even in the situation where kids are harmed, um, or, you know, have experienced neglect and are needing a safe space, whether temporarily or permanently is heart wrenching, um, I think I realized in those experiences, kids in foster care have always experienced grief and loss. Um, and so, and also, you know, many times when I was counseling the birth parents too, I was realizing they're coming from their own trauma histories and the, their own unhealthy support systems. And there was part of me that was like, I'm not surprised you're in this position and this situation that you're in right now. And if we did a better job of coming alongside families, could that look different, you know, instead of it just being an us versus them and, you know, they're bad and we have to put up boundaries and keep our distance and protect the kids. What would it look like? You know, these kids generally, you know, there's definitely the different circumstances. I know I don't want to just generalize, but a lot of kids really love their birth families. They want to go home, you know? Um, and, and if they go home, they miss their foster family and they wish they could yeah. see them and vice versa. And I realized like I was facilitating these final visitations with birth families sometimes or final goodbyes with foster families. And these kids are caught in this situation that sucks, you know? Right. <laughs> and I was realizing when families can build relationships, um, that a lot of times that was a lot better for the kids. Um, but I think too, in foster care, I was realizing, you know, trauma and healing is not a linear growth pattern. Mm. <laughs> it is a lot more complicated than that. And foster parents are stepping in and wanting to love and serve these kids well. And a lot of times feel so ill-equipped and hurt by their support systems, not understanding what their family is going through, which mm. also isolates and separates families from, from getting true support and love that they need through this journey. And so I just... I knew it was messy and then I got exposed to it and I was like, this is way messier than I thought it was. And also there's hope and we can do better. Um, and so I think, you know, there was that piece of it as well. Like what, what could this look like? You know? Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful to get that insight. You know, it's interesting. I was in teaching this morning, uh, with the students at Multinoma and we were looking at, this is very, I, I won't teach sociology right now, but there's a <laughs> there's a Yuri Broffenbrenner has this great uh, model called ecological systems theory, and it's all based on these people operating. This could be a child, this could be a human within these different settings, but we're specifically applying it to kids uh, that have gone through adversity, children at risk, that type of segment, and we got into a foster care. Um, case study that I had written just based off of working within foster care in California. And when we talked about this, what you just alluded to as well, this shifting settings, you know, shifting from this setting to that setting. And this one was, there was abuse there and then they got moved. And like all of these, like you said, you use the word compounding. I, I just think that that's really apropos. And when we really kind of dive into, you know, what these kids are coming from, Hopefully that would inform the types of interventions, but you know it's 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 a really it's a really tough you know situation. So uh, yeah, it's that's a lot for sure. Yeah, and I think too, our kids are you know they get removed from their family, their community, their friends, everything they know, and we expect like oh they're in a safe environment, this is good. Why aren't they acting that way? Why are we still seeing emotions and behaviors and things like that? And then kids only see their birth parents for one visit a week for an hour. And we expect that that's not going to be traumatic when they're separated again, or right. they have some behaviors come up again, because it's going to remind them of their first separation, you know? And so there's just so many, sometimes we have this lens on of like, oh, it's because the, you know, we want to feed the narrative that, oh, it's because it's a bad relationship or that's what's traumatic, but it's like, it's so much more complicated than that. And so, um, yeah, I think just like, 
empathy again and compassion for everyone in the triad you know this is this is really hard um and what can we do um as parents as professionals as support systems to come alongside our families in a better way yeah and you alluded to something there as well uh that you mentioned in the book which is you know just that you know when you entered this foster care and adoption arena what you said was you were believing the popular narrative among Christians. And uh, I kind of want to dig into that. And you already alluded to some of these facets of what that narrative is. But in the book, you articulate that one, children in foster care and orphanages needed us. Two, their birth families were often terrible. Three, our homes were better options for these children. And four, love was enough to heal all wounds. Now, I think on Think Orphan, we have uh, in some ways, dove into each of those different things. For sure, I'm thinking of Brittany Salmon's book. Uh, she was on the podcast last year, which was literally called, oh, what was it? It was like love. Uh, oh, man. It, it was that whole, it was this like, love is enough to heal everything, like what you're describing here. And that was, book was like nominated for like a Christianity Today thing. And I, now I can't even remember the title. But anyways, uh, you know, the orphanage piece, the foster care piece, uh, demonizing the birth families. These are all things that we've talked about. How do you think that this common narrative has evolved? You know, and then obviously, it, because it is a, a false narrative, what are the inherent shortfalls of that type of outlook? Yeah, you know, I think I don't think it was a mal- anything malicious <laughs> by Christians. You know, I think it started off with good intentions, right? We see all through Scripture, the cause of the fatherless is something that's really important to the heart of God, right? That is kind of driven home multiple times, and then you start to see um, this system that's not fully researched and not understood well, um, where Christians want to do something to help, and it's very easy and and um, to step in and care for children, right? It's a lot harder to step in and want to support a birth parent who has a drug addiction, who is back and forth and you're worried they're taking advantage of you and about, you know, it's a lot messier to step into something like that. And I think part of the Christian narrative was, you know, kids, kids have been harmed. We care for kids, anyone that would harm a kid or not be the best parent possible for a child must be bad. You know, I think there's some assumptions that we start piling on top of each other. And then, you know, and and also the, hey, I've got a great home. I can give them a good education. They get to come to church. Like there's all these things that we start to believe about why we're a better option uh, than a birth family. Except we know through research that that's actually not true. It's kids do better when they can actually go home to their birth families. Um, And same with, you know, this is why I love One Million Homes so much is we've seen Christians had really great intentions, like kids that were truly orphaned did need need homes and needed families, except what we ended up fueling was a poverty crisis because we were funding those organizations and orphanages and parents were realizing I can't provide those things for my kids. And then parents, again, thinking education, shelter, clothing, food, these are better uh, things than family are sending their kids to orphanages um, to get those needs met. And, you know, those needs are important, right? When we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the the foundation is physiological, right? Um, You know, clothing, shelter, food, things like that. Those needs need to be met. But that's only foundational when we look at safety, security, and we move up that ladder. Family is so crucial. And I think that's why we've seen a shift. And that's why this book, too, we've really wanted to challenge some of that status quo, that we know open adoptions, there's a lot more pros than cons, like open adoption is becoming the norm. Now that was something that used to be feared 20, 30 years ago, you know, how, why would I be in a relationship that's threatening to me as a parent, you know, and we're realizing their birth families are always part of our kids' lives. Always. It doesn't matter if you're in a relationship or not. They're thinking about it, wondering who they came from, where they came from. You know, am I like my mom? Do I play soccer like my dad? You know, these are things you're never taking those questions away from your children. And so what does it look like to be in relationship? You know, um, and then I think the villainizing part, I think, you know, um, birth parents are bad. I think when we can switch that, narrative to understanding like a lot of our parents are coming from really broken homes and families themselves a lot almost every single birth parent I did counseling with had their own extensive trauma history or they started using drugs with their parents at 13 and I'm like of 
course you have a drug addiction, you know? Um, and, and then also we're expecting them to, you know, here's your checklist of things you need to accomplish in a year. Goodness. I don't know if I could do it. And I have a healthy support system around me. And we're telling a parent that doesn't have a healthy support system around them or what that even looks like to do it by themselves. Right. And so I think with those narratives, it's a really great opportunity for the church and for Christians to see Jesus loves these families more than we could ever imagine. And he is cheering for them and wants to mentor them and love them and care for them. And as followers, we should embody that as well. I should be cheering for my my child's birth parents to experience healing and redemption and all these things, regardless of the outcome. Um, and so what does it look like us, like look like for us to kind of have that change of heart, change of perspective, <laughs> um, to, to step that way and to step into some of the messiness. I think that's hard for Christians to do, you know, again, it's a lot easier for not that it's easier, right? Kids coming into our homes with trauma, we're realizing this is harder than we thought. Um, but that's, you know, that can feel a little easier than trying to love a birth family through their healing process as well. And, you know, any concerns, um, that we, we might have in the boundaries there as well. So. Yeah, there, there's there's so much. I mean, that's, that's the frustrating thing about doing this podcast is we could probably talk for six hours on just with that last question, right? I mean, there's so much to it. Um, one of the things, though, that I, I was, my, my actually, it's my, my kid's eighth grade teacher. She says this. She says, if you say always or never about something, you're, you're pretty much guaranteeing that you're, you're lying <laughs> at some level, unless you're talking about God, right? Um, but... But it's, and I think that goes for a lot of these myths, a lot of these, you know, uh, stereotypes, whatever we want to call them. They're, they're, if you use these absolutes, chances are, you know, you're, you're just simplify, oversimplifying things. And I think that's something to always remember in the work that we do is, is that it's nuanced. It's so hard. It's, it's, it's every human is different. Right. And, and that goes to kind of the next question that we're talking about. And, and um, on this on this podcast, I mean, since day one, we we've talked about I mean, it was actually this podcast kind of came out of In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence, which was a book that the two requirements I had for finding co-authors was experiential expertise and a posture of humility. Right. Like you had to actually have gotten your hands dirty. You actually had to do this work. And and because we often have experts that just, you know, say stuff and they've never really lived it. And not that that means they don't have anything to say because they've studied the different things, but that there's this, there is a theory practice gap, right? You know, and and uh, I'm not going to say some big name and some big book that I don't understand the title of like Brandon does, but there's there's other things that, you know, we can we can talk about. But Something you mentioned in the book too is 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 you emphasize, and you emphasize this really at the at the replanted conferences, right? In the book you wrote, a top-down approach where experts drive the conversation can sometimes miss the mark. We may not have a good sense of what our children are actually struggling with or what they truly need. Guidance from experts can be helpful in our children's healing process, children's healing process, but to the be, but to best care for children through adoption and foster care. We also need to hear from those with lived experience. We need both sets of voices. I think that is so much truth to that. But can you dive deeper into that and illuminate, you know, why both sets of voices are are needed and often complement each other? Yeah, absolutely. I this is something I'm really passionate about, and this is why at our replanted conference. Every single general session always has the voice of an adoptee, a foster alum, or a birth parent um, because their perspective and what we can learn from them is so important. We need mm -hmm. to hear from those with lived experience. I think, you know, just for me, obviously I'm the professional, right? So <laughs> I'm I'm this, I'm that other side of the equation without lived experience, which is ironic. But um <laughs> I, you know, for me, stepping into foster care and working as a trauma therapist, yes, there was things I could offer families in the healing process with their kids, right? Um but goodness, the whole reason I wrote Thriving Families was because of what I learned from my kids sharing their hearts with me. Mm. You know, a seven-year-old boy telling me that, uh, who had been in foster care for two years, finding out that he can't go home to his mom and he's going to get adopted by his foster family. Now, a lot of times what we see in social media is, I spent 582 days in foster mm -hmm. care and today I get adopted and this is big celebration. And what this little boy said to me is my adoption day is the saddest day of my life because it mm. it's the it's affirming that I will never be able to go home with my mom. Mm. And we can't ignore things like that. We cannot mm. ignore those voices, you know, um, 
I, I see that a lot, you know, families wanting to adopt and people are cheering for that to happen. And we're, and, and we're missing the other side of the coin, right? Yes. Kids need to be in families and yes, adoption can be a good thing. Right. But that kid just lost their birth family, you yeah. know? And so if we can't honor both sides of that coin, um, we're really going to be hurting our kids and invalidating their experience. And so, you know, I, I remember one of, a. Uh, gentleman by the name of Luke Mitchell, who's spoken at our conference before. He was an African-American um, man who grew up in a white family, grew up white suburbia, white church, white school, everything. And he struggled with his identity, right? Like, I, I don't feel like I fit into this white culture, but I don't even feel like I fit into my black culture either. And he tells the story of like pulling up to a barber, an African-American barber shop in his car and like he couldn't get out of the car to go in because he's like, I don't know if I, I don't know that I belong here either. Right. He wanted to step in, but you know, there's just so much um, there that if we're not listening to those with lived experiences where we can learn and see where we've gone wrong, where we've gone right, what can we do better, where we can have these grace filled conversations. Um, I think when we can hear from those with lived experience, we can be the best parents possible. Um, and I think too, you know, a part of that is sometimes our kids, you know, I think sometimes those voices have been silenced because we don't want to hear the uncomfortable things or the stuff that triggers us. You know, it's really hard to sit with your child who's been adopted and them saying, you know, I wish I never had to come here. I wish I could have stayed with my family. Right. It's hard to hear, mm -hmm. but also what if they could have stayed like that, that curiosity, that questioning is there, right? What would have my life have been like if I got to stay with my birth family and I was raised by my mom, you know, um, I got to stay in South Korea, you know, these are okay questions. They're not threatening. Um, so what does it look like for us to kind of step in with humility as well, learn from the experts, you know, the trauma informed care, this stuff's really important. Sensory processing, our kids can have really significant, trauma histories and emotional behavioral needs as a result. And so we want to help them in that healing process. But man, if we do it without their voices, we're really going to be in bad shape. This episode is brought to you by the Attachment and Trauma-Focused Therapy online course by Deborah Gray. You guys remember hearing my conversation with Deborah Gray in episode 208. And after decades of this work and a catalog of books, she's truly one of the most impactful therapists and thought leaders on trauma and attachment issues relating to orphans and vulnerable children. The ATFT program was produced by One Million Home and is available in partnership with the Honestly Adoption Company. You guys have heard our friend Mike Berry on the pod in the past two, of course, and for a limited time, this course is available for only $99. In the course, Deborah covers an array of topics that are pertinent to both parents and clinicians. One of the best things that you can do is refer this to a therapist that you know to get better equipped and also get their annual continuing education units. It's a full-length accredited postgraduate program with over 20 hours of training, and it's critical information for those of us in the sector. I first went through the course back in 2021 and was so blown away that I knew I wanted our team at One Million Home to make this course more available to a broader audience. So go to honestlyadoption.com front slash ATFT to sign up. Use the promo code ATFT99 to get the huge discount. I mean, guys, professionals typically pay $1,500 for this course up here in the Seattle area but you could dive in for so much less and be better equipped to love and serve kids coming from hard places. Yeah, no, 100%. And I, and I, it's just always so interesting to me to, you know, read parenting books and to read leadership books and to, and to read these things and go, I, I try that. But it doesn't work with me. Right. Like in, and, and that's the reality of this is different whoever's writing whatever, whatever research study is done somewhere, it's a particular snapshot in time by a particular person in a particular way, and that may or may not apply to you. And, and also, listening to sh lived experiences may not apply to you, too. As you said, like, I've talked with so many adoptees, and some are like, I never even want to even think about finding my birth mom. And other people are like, I can't stop thinking about my birth parents. You know, and I just talked with a guy the other day who, who is actually in the context of my soccer podcast, and, and I was talking to him about that, and he shares how he's adopted. And he went and he talked to his parents and his, and his, his adoptive father, he was adopted at birth, his adoptive father, you know, uh, said, I think, you know, he said, I want to find my mom, my birth mom. And he said, okay, that's fine. He said, I, I recommend you, you know, wait till you're older. 
you know, and whatever. And, and, and he did. He waited till he was about 30. And then he went in, and I've never, I'd never heard this before. He, like, came in with, like, boundaries from the start saying, hey, I want to talk to you here, but it's only going to be for this exact thing. And, again, that may work for some. It may not work for others. Um, and to say there's a right way or this is what the research shows, here's what science shows, whatever you're saying, it's like that may or may not work in a particular situation. So to take all of it, kind of chew on all of it, and then, and then bring out of it what we can learn and what we can, what we can do in our particular context with our particular children. And, you know, I've always talked about this. You know, those who have listened to the show, you know, I've never, I haven't adopted or fostered. I've just done it vicariously through others, many, many others. But I have five biological children, and I see with them how different it is and how different they are. And, and you know, when we're doing this, we can't just say, oh, here's one size fits all. It worked with my first kid, therefore I can just do it with my second. No, it, it's not that simple. Um, you know, so that's something that, yeah, I just, just, I, yeah, I think, Phil, I think you're touching on something that's really important there. And that's what we talk about in the book a lot is, um, everyone's experience is unique and their perspective is unique. I think as parents, if we can learn and be open to the variety of ways our children might want their story to play out, um, then we can really follow their lead. And some of this really does need to be child-led, you know, and it might change. That's the thing, right? It might be right now. I want to have a relationship with my birth mom. I love her to pieces. And then, you know, I, I was talking about this with somebody before we hit developmental milestones all throughout our life. So to think that understanding our story or healing from our trauma is this linear thing. And we get to our final destination is not reality. It's lifelong forever. A five-year-old is going to process their story in a way that when they're 12, they're going to reprocess it because their brains developed and they're going to, they're going to have different questions and understanding it in a different way might have new curiosities, whatever it might be. That five-year-old that wanted a relationship, that 12-year-old might be like, I want to be a normal kid and I need a break, you know? And so being yeah. able to follow our, our child's lead in that and support them with wherever they're at and validate their feelings, like this is complicated, you know? Yeah. Most people don't have to navigate having two moms, you know? <laughs> and so being able to step in with our kids in that way is really important. But I think you're right. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, you know, for my, my little boy that said, you know, this is the saddest day of my life for some kids, it's the happiest, you know, and mm -hmm. you just don't know, but for us to assume our feelings are what our kids feelings are, or to even influence them. I think sometimes we make that mistake too, um, as parents where we don't want to see our kids hurting, right. We don't want to see them sad yeah. and in pain, or if a parent missed a visit. And so maybe we try to villainize the parent, right. So then they won't feel as hurt if a parent misses a visit, or we try to tell them why they're you know, all the things their parents have done wrong or something to try to make them feel better. Or we kind of gloss over like, we love you so much. We're always going to be here for you. Right. I think sometimes as Christians, we have a really hard time in sitting in the pain of people's stories and what they're going through. And we want to find that quick fix or the hope or the light at the end of the tunnel. That's just not reality. I mean, my husband and I had a miscarriage a few years ago and it was awful. And I was telling my family that we had lost the baby and, um, some of my family said, you know, I know you don't want to hear this, but at least, you know, you can get pregnant now. And I was like, time out. <laughs> like, do you know, but we do that all the time, right? right? Yeah. We're trying, oh, like I see your pain, but I want to fix it. Right. And I told them, you know, I, I should be sad right now. It's okay for me to be yeah. sad about this right now. Yeah. And if we can say that to our kids, like, it's okay for you to have questions or to feel sad or mad about this, you know? Um, right. At some point, maybe they'll, you know, that their, their feelings and thoughts and experiences might shift and maybe not, but they're entitled to those thoughts and feelings. Um, and so when we can step in and not assume it's a one size fits all, I think that can be helpful. Yeah, well, and the last thing that we want to do is trivialize, you know, their experience. Uh, and as humans, you know, we're dynamic beings that feel a range of emotions, have a range of thoughts. And if we suppress some of that expression, it's, that's only going to harm us. You know, so and, and going back to what Phil was saying, you know, we can and this almost gets back to some of what you shared in your previous book in the in the replanted book. But um, which I also recommend people go check out. Um, but, uh, you know, there's that there's that head knowledge piece. But then there's also, you know, as you as you learn that head knowledge, you have to um, you have to apply it. Uh, 
You have to be have discern, uh, discernment, right? And that's really more about wisdom. And what I love about Thriving Families is, uh, you know, it's a great book. You know, people can read through it, but but it, it it's a guidebook, and that's and that's how you guys title it. You know, it gives people something to think through a range of different topics. Uh, necessary areas that foster and adoptive families should be aware of, need to be aware of as they parent um, a child that, you know, has passed through whatever level and whatever type of adversity. Um, And uh, it really promotes wisdom and being able to apply really important principles, but to apply them in a way that's going to fit your specific child. Um, you know, and, and again, throughout the book, you are prioritizing the lived experiences of foster children and adoptees. And uh, one of the things I love about this book, and it's reflected in the Replanted Conference as well, is that shared story from families. Um, you know, you're providing practical advice. I mean, uh, if you guys just, th- this is just kind of some of the chapter headings so our, so our listeners are aware. You talk about the knowledge, so trauma and its impact, attachment. You mentioned sensory processing, uh, cultural and social adjustment, which you spoke to a minute ago. I'd love for you to dive more in here in a second. Grief and loss. And then you get into some tools and interventions, felt safety, connection, correction, regulation, honoring a kid's story, uh, helping children find their voice, which as a you know firm believer in child participation, I love that. Um you know, so so this is kind of like the real life support and guidance that that people can tap into through this book. You know, and each of these chapters are really easy to get into. So definitely recommend our listeners uh, check out Thriving Families. But give us a taste, uh, Jen. Uh, can you? We'll just grab one here. If and you already spoke to this one a little bit, but you know, as as a as a white father to an African son, uh, the story that you shared. Uh, resonated with me as well. You know, um, we want opportunities for our son who's African. He's not African-American. Like we lived in Africa and that's where he originated, but still wanting him to have connection with the black community, you know? So I take him to a, to an African-American barber, um, you know, in, so that, so that he can have those types of things, but I need that more. I mean, I just, if I'm just honest, like we need that type, but maybe you can just share a little bit more about, you know, the importance of that cultural and social adjustment, you know, for foster and adoptive families that maybe are, you know, parenting, uh, cross-culturally or transracially. Um, what would be some of those, what would be some of those tips, advice, tools, considerations that you would recommend? Yeah, I think the first one is you really should think about your environment as a foster or adoptive family when you have a child come into your home that's a person of color uh, for from a different cultural background than yours. I think a lot of times we have our lives, you know, it's very common for um, groups of people to acclimate to their groups, right? So it's common, you go into a, you know, a white church, it's predominantly white, you go into a black church, it's pre- predominantly black. Um When it comes to honoring that part of your child's identity, you really do need to nurture this. Um, And so we, we talk a lot about in the book about thinking about your environment. Now, I know for some families, you know, you're not going to be able to uproot and move to a diverse part of the country um, to give your child that, but you, you can do it in other ways. You know, maybe you're driving to a different school district so that your child is around others who look like them. Maybe you're intentionally involving yourself in a church again, like that's diverse. That looks like your child. Um, you know, is there things that you can do in terms of cooking, um, learning, going to museums? Like, what can you do to learn together as a family as well? That's super important. One thing I do think, um, and and um, one person that I think does this well is uh, Cam Lee Small. I'm not sure if you've heard of him from Therapy Redeemed. On uh, he's on Instagram. He really talks a lot about cultural stuff, um, and I think it's important because we can really overlook that or think it's kind of a minor thing for our children when it is, it's very big. Um, One thing that I think is really important though, is if you have a child that's maybe African-American or Asian or, you know, a a different race than yourself, and you're telling them, I love you. I love who you are. I love everything about you. And, but your community is predominantly white. What are you communicating to your child? Like I love all African-Americans, but really just you, not enough for me to be in relationship with anyone else that looks like you, you know, 
there are very subtle things that your kid is going to be picking up on. Um, and so you need to pay attention to that. You know, is it uncomfortable for you to go to an African-American church? Imagine how your child feels then as an African-American going into a white church all the time. Right. And so you need to, you need as a parent to really lead that you need to step into those, um, into those diverse areas, populations, churches, schools, communities with your child to show them like, Hey, I love this part of you. And this is how I'm going to show you. Um, kids pick up on that. If you're, if your whole community is a friends, uh, is, is white and they're not, they, they, they pick up on that. Um, I think the other thing too, is mentors are really important. I think mentors in general who are adoptees or, um, former foster youth, just can relate to our kids in a, in a very unique way, but especially when it comes to their racial or ethnic background. Um, so having, you know, having mentors that your kids can connect with who look like them, that they can process things. Honestly, too, we just, as parents, we're pretty naive to some of the things racially that our kids might experience. And so for them to be able to have honest and real conversations with a trusted mentor who looks like them is really, really important. So I think that's another tool or a tip that we would recommend. Um, and then I, I hinted at this a little bit before, but learning with your child, right? You mentioned that your your child's African. What can we learn about their culture? Can we go back to the country of origin and learn more? Are there museums nearby? Is the food that food cooking classes we can take together? Can I learn their native language with them and, and can foster that with them? You know, does it doesn't need to necessarily end um, with them learning English and that's the end of it, right? Like what can we do as well as parents to help continue to foster that? Um, and then I think it's important to initiate conversations around race and culture, um, but also to take your child's lead on it. You know, like sometimes kids might be like, I'm most, I'm more interested in prom and what I'm going to wear <laughs> or how I'm going to ask my date out. <laughs> you know, they're not, not super interested in, um, you know, talking more about their culture, ethnic background. But what, what can we incorporate? You know, e- this even simple things. I remember a little boy who... Um, you know, he on Christmas morning, what their family did was they would wake up at the crack of dawn and race down to the tree and just rip into their presents. And the foster family came to, did not do it that way. They went to church first, then they would come home and, and open presents very intentionally. Right. And so um, when he was there, like he came, he woke up and he raced downstairs and he ripped in all the presents that were his. Right. And then was kind of um, not shamed, but, you know, like was told that's not right. Our kids are acclimating to so much of what we do and how we function as families. What can we incorporate that's theirs? Even if it's a family tradition, but especially if it's a cultural tradition, what is something that we can do to honor who they are as well? Um, so that's another thing that we talk about in the book uh, as well. So Well, that's that's good. And and our listeners can definitely dig into the book to get more. The, the book is out now. You know, and I want to go back to something even as a believer. You know, one of the things that you shared there, which I just really appreciate, um, you know, for us, we were a little spoiled because when we adopted our son, we were living in Tanzania. So like associating with Tanzanians, I was like, well, that's most people here. <laughs> like, you know, speaking Swahili, like we already do that and we still do that. So we were kind of spoiled in some regards because it became cultural for our family to kind of live in that liminal space, which is awesome. We still have so much that we need to work on in terms of cultural adjustment. But um, at any rate, we were really spoiled in that regard. But one of the things that I really appreciated you uh, talking about was, you know, it's not just the barber. It could be like getting into the into one of the predominantly black churches. And, you know, as, as a Christian, I think about that experience and be like, well, that's what heaven's going to be like. There's going to be a lot of you know, like, and churches do become from all backgrounds, right? And and churches do become uh, somewhat naturally homogenous somehow. I don't know why, but but I I just noticed that. So, in some ways, it actually gives us an opportunity to even more experience the bride of Christ, you know, by, by entering to another cultural expression of that. So anyways, that was something that just kind of came to mind. All right. I got to get you on one more though. And you alluded to this one as well earlier. How about some practical advice on navigating relationships with birth families? You know, you mentioned something that maybe a lot of people don't recognize that open adoption used to be something that was less 
prominent, uh, less practiced. Uh, that's becoming more prominent, more practiced. Um, and, uh, and then you also have, of course, some of these kids are in foster care and could be on a reunification track. So, so this applies with them as well. Um, give us some, give us some practical advice, uh, on navigating those relationships. Yeah. And I'd say too, even for kids who are not on a reunification track in foster care, this is something that's important is nourishing that relationship with birth families as much as you can. Um, One of the big things I think is sometimes we're threatened by birth families um, and they may parent different than us. We might think and act differently. Um, They might be in a different, just a different phase of life, whatever it might be. There can be barriers that um, are there. But a lot of times uh, what I've seen happen is we put up boundaries more out of fear than reality, right? Um, So we might feel like maybe a birth parent isn't safe or we need to protect our children. We talk a lot about when you're engaging in relationships with birth families, you want to support kids through, not protect them from. Here's the thing. Your kids, if they want to seek out their birth families, they're going to do it. They're going to research on the internet, phone calls, social media, all the things. And if you don't help nourish or foster those relationships, um, they're just going to keep it a secret from you. And so you really want to be a partner in versus somebody who's kind of against or uh, being a break pusher. Now, there might be some legitimate concerns, right? We might feel like, you know, that parents maybe have had substance abuse issues and, you know, we need to be cautious around that. Um, there might be, you know, visits that are missed on several occasions. And so you're like, I don't want to prep my kid for a visit that might not happen. Um, I, I get those things. And so I think what you can do as a family is really assess what are, what are kind of the bare minimums we can do and we can grow from there. If you're concerned about having a physical visit, can we set up a zoom call? You know, can we do, can we get a Google number? Can we have a PO box where we're communicating with letters and pictures and we kind of start small there and then move into something that's more relational. Um, there's almost, even when there's safety concerns, there's almost always something, some sort of relationship you can have through technology letters, things like that, um, that take away some of those physical safety concerns. Um, and so what does that look like? The other thing that I would really recommend is kind of following your child's lead, um, in this, um, I alluded to some of this earlier, but it can be common, especially when a child's been harmed by a parent to want to villainize them, um, or to kind of educate the child on why they're not a great parent. (laughs) Um, and if that child's narrative is still, my mom's the best mom in the world. And in your head, you're like, I mean, is she, you know, it's really important not to change that narrative to honor that that's where the child's at. That's how they feel about their mom. That's okay. You know, they might have a different understanding later in life, but what does that look like? Um, I think sometimes trauma can flare up more when we cut those relationships off. Uh, in my experience, some of the hardest, most traumatic, like experiences I saw with my kids was when I had to do a final visit in foster care because they weren't going home and they were saying goodbye. And I knew those kids when they were 18, were going to go for it and find their mom and try to live with them again. So what does it have to be an all or nothing? No, there's lots of in-between ways that we can be in relationship with birth families. And I would really consider families explore that. I think for parents who are feeling threatened by that or don't know how to do it, to talk to others who have done it uh, and what recommendations they have, but then also to even have your own counselor or a person that can give you wise counsel around any triggers that you might be having, right? So is your boundary or you know zero relationship um, boundary based out of your fear or is it reality, you know? And what can we do if... Um, you know, if it is, there is safety concerns. Like I said, there, there are things that you can still do, but if there isn't, then what work can you do as a parent, um, to get to that place where you can be, um, in relationship with birth families? I've actually, you know, I think it feels scary. I think that's one of the things like it, it can feel really scary and overwhelming. And what do I, you know, as this, this is their child love their birth parents more than me. And, you know, there's so many feelings that come up, but I, when I've seen it done well, I mean, I've seen beautiful relationships form between birth families and, and foster or adoptive families where they're going to each other's birthday parties, to Christmas, going out for dinner. You know, I, I have, I have some kiddos who have uh, been adopted and they go and have sleepovers for the weekend with their, their birth family, you know? And it's like, 
and I'm sure for some people that's just like almost incomprehensible, you know, <laughs> um, but it, it can be done. It can be done well. And I think never underestimate a birth parent's ability to heal. Um, I think that's one of the last things we talk about, you know, you, you, there might be a boundary that you've had in place and now it's been five or 10 years. And is that still realistic or has there, has, have things changed, has healing occurred and, and we can have things look a little bit different now, but I think for kids, you know, follow their lead again, sometimes kids want more intense relationships. Sometimes they need a little bit of a break. Um, and that's okay as well. We talk about that in the book too, following our, our kids lead, but um, you know, you can start small pictures, letters, you know, writing back and forth, move it into Zoom. Okay, let's do a, a public visit at a park now. Okay, maybe now you can come to the birthday party, right? Like, what are things right. that you can do incrementally to grow and foster that relationship? Yeah, that is, uh, that is so, so good. Um, again, there's, there's so much. I'm glad we have a book that we could, that, that we can just say, hey, Go read in the book. Like, seriously, go read in the book and then, you know, listen to this, supplement, and then go and you're doing other podcasts. Go listen to the other podcasts, Jen's on, and, you know, and then you'll get you'll get more and more goodness from that. But we, we got we to gotta end it somewhere, right? So now we are coming to that time. But we, as you know, because you've been on before, we have a couple questions we ask everybody, and you, hopefully you've listened to a few episodes anyway. Um, what have you read, watched, or listened to since the last time? Because I don't even remember what you said then. I probably should have gone back and, and looked. But um, listen to this. Most impact your thinking, uh, or has impact, because if you did more than that most last time, then thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence. Well, this is this is where you'll see some of my growth because I think last time I said Karen Purvis because I had just done the TBRI training and then Michelle Schneidler had been a big influencer in my life as well. Yes. Now I would say it's a lot of voices of adoptees and foster alum. Um, so I am very impacted by people like Camly Smalls, Tori Hope Peterson, Tina Bauer, um, people who are using their experience, their people with lived experiences who are sharing their stories in really real vulnerable ways to help us be better professionals and parents, support systems, caregivers. Um, so I would say those are those are the voices that I'm really intrigued by and just trying to soak up as much information as I possibly can. Um, and then I would say organizations, I, you know, when I started replanted, my hope was always that we would kind of get on the front end. Um, and so I love 1 million home, um, for that reason. And then every mother's advocate is doing a lot of work around supporting moms so that kids don't end up in foster care. I love things like that, like that we can do, you know, I really feel like when it comes to what scripture says about the cause of the fatherless, it wasn't just adoption and foster care. It was about family preservation and reunification efforts and getting on the front end of a lot of that stuff. And so I would love to see the church just really leading the way and thinking broader in that regard and embracing that more fully um, and just kind of helping change that narrative around, you know, some of the stuff we talked about earlier around some of the status quos and just slowly turning the ship, you know, <laughs> um, we know better now and we're learning more and we have lots more to learn. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So you mentioned, obviously, the the adoptees and that, you know, that uh, you've been listening to. Is there any one um, person uh, or story that that has most impacted your thinking as as you've as it has evolved and as, as you've as it will continue to as you will continue to learn. But is there one that you can just tell that story that that one person that's impacted you or maybe even instigate incited this this kind of transition? Yeah, I again, it's my um, acknowledgement in the book this time was all the kids in foster care that I walked alongside who shared their stories with me that that book was a, a reflection of them. Obviously, I can't name their names. Um, yeah. And I sometimes I wish like these five year olds, seven year olds, 12 year olds that I sat with, like if they knew what their story meant to me and um, just how much it's affected me and the work that it's be this has become my life's work now. Um there's one little girl that I worked with that I think especially had a huge impact on me. She, um, her parents were abusing substances. Um, she was removed with her four siblings placed in a home. And then ultimately just, uh, it was too much to keep them together. And so they got separated. Um, she got separated from two of her siblings, which was really traumatic for her. 
she she's one who really showed me like she loved her parents she wanted to go home when they missed visits it was so devastating she wanted to see them she looked forward to it then she got separated from her siblings and that wrecked her as well um and then just the child welfare system in general is um social workers are way overworked and underpaid and there's high turnover and it's really awful um and so by the time she had been in counseling with me for a while, but about eight months in, I was the only consistent person that had been in her life at this point. And she, she went through it and it was really hard. Um, and I think I was exposed to the really deep reality of trauma, sibling separation, um, just when things don't go as you hope. (laughs) Um, and, but I saw as she was kind of bouncing from a home to home and getting hospitalized um, because her her behaviors and emotions were so significant. I saw what happens when a family who is supported well and becomes trauma informed and has a deep compassion can step in and 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 say, "I love you in your mess, and I love you no matter what." And so I saw tremendous healing from this little girl. Uh, and the role that her family played and how intentional they were about making sure they were supported well, and they did their part too. And um, I know that doesn't always happen. You know, I know, you know, I, I have stories of people that come to the replanted conference and their children are in jail and, you know, there's, their circumstances may never change. Um, But I think like remembering you're loved no matter what, you no matter, no matter how hard you're, how hard things are with your kids and, um, no matter what your life looks like. And it definitely probably doesn't look like what you wanted it to, (laughs) um, you know, their voice matters and what they've been through is hard. And if we can continue to just be the hands and feet of Jesus and showing up in really intentional ways, um, it may never move the needle, but you were faithful and, and that's important. So. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, thank you so much, Jen. You know, I mean, we we heard so much good, solid, amazing wisdom from you. Um, last time we had you on, this time as well. This time we also clarify that you're still a Canadian, so that's still okay. Still Canadian, yes. That's good. And if you were wondering, you heard the out and about, and you heard the, you, you know, you know, so I, I was, it's definitely, you know, you can take the girl out of Canada, you know, but. Can't you know, take the so Canada out of the girl. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> so um, anyway, thank you so much. We're we're so grateful for you, um, your ministry that you, that God has has placed on you. Uh, you being faithful to the call and um, just sharing that, all that you're learning with us. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great to be with you. Well, once again, Jen Hook did not disappoint. So uh, man, just so much, so much good stuff. I, I, I am you know, I'm just excited that we were able to get her on. I'm excited, like I said, I mean, and I'll say it again, that there is that book that we can go to and, you know, just thriving families. Like, like it's, it, it says it in the name, you know, I, I love it. I just love, I love the idea of thriving. I love the idea of shalom, you know, like pursuing shalom, right? Like that's something that that flourishing, all of that, if you, you know, you, you don't have to be around me long to hear the word flourish come out of my mouth, you know, and I, and I just think that that's something that I think we too often settle and we too often, you know, go by a rule book, you know, and say, okay, what is, how do you do foster care? How do you do adoption? I think, I think that's what we're all, not all, but a lot of people are looking for that, you know, go to CAFO Summit to get the, to get the, uh, you know, all the different little hits, hints and tips and, and whatever. And I'm always so grateful for the people who, you know, my wife and I have always said with parenting, like, we, we don't read parenting books. We talk to people, we glean information, but, but we realize that the Bible is the best source. And, and then just people talking to mentors, people that we can talk and share the specific issues, going back to the expertise combined with a shared you know, experience. I, I, I find that the, the experts in my life are the parents who have been through, and I can see, you know, they've been through the ringer. You know, not, not, not meaning all their kids are perfect, because there's no such thing, but that their kids are out, and they're, you know, they have relationships with them, whatever's going on, you know. So I think that that was just a really, um, I think, helpful 
I, I think that's the best word for it. I mean, it was enlightening, yeah. yes, but it was just a helpful conversation for, I, I hope, I hope a lot of people out there who are kind of in the middle of it, which, you know, we know we have on the other end of this. Right. And, and for those that do pick up Thriving Families, which I definitely recommend, I know I really enjoyed getting into it myself. Um, a lot of the components within the book feels like that conversation, like with yeah. somebody hearing their story. How did, yeah. what did they do in this situation? Or how did these parents or this clinician or this child, you know, tackle, you know, this sensitive area, you know, when it comes to not only parenting, but specifically parenting a child through foster care or adoption. And um, so there, there's just so much in there that that is really great. And, you know, Jen, she doesn't disappoint. She's a wealth of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, absolutely great to be in conversation with her uh, once again. So it's good, man. The other thing that was cool is, you know, toward the end there, she gave us a list of people we need to get on the show. So that, you know, Tori Ho Peterson, we've already had on. And then, you know, she's rolling off these names and I'm going, all right, I hope you're writing them down. And you, when you edit, I know you're going to write it, jot them down and we can get, you know, to have those conversations. It is more, it is so important to, to have those conversations. I was talking to the, the I mentioned the guy, uh, um, Steve Axtell's his name and he's a coach, he's a soccer coach and, and he's learned a ton of different things and his story is fascinating. And I think the idea of those, those boundaries that he put up, you know, it, it's not for everybody, but thought it would be great. I was like, hey, I want to get you on Soccer Explains Leadership and Think Orphan because it's such a great uh, conversation because, again, it, it just gives us different perspectives. And, you know, if you just talk to one kid, you're like, oh, wow, okay. Well, I then you talk to somebody else and you're like, well, yeah, that's not the way it's supposed to be done because this person over here, you know, they did it. And I mean, it never ceases to just amaze me fascinate me to see how different we are <laughs> you know like the gene pools out there you know they're not that different right when you look at the chromosomes and all these different things and yet there's some kids who literally have searched through china to find their birth parents and other kids who just would never don't even want to someone to mention it um so and it and it's there's no rhyme or reason to it like it's just that's the way it is. So I, it's so important to get to know each kid, to, to listen, to not force, um, you know, and we all know as parents, if you tell a kid not to do something, they're going to want to do it. If you tell a kid, you know, they, they have to do something, they're going to be like, I don't want to do it, you know, and so to, to listen, to guide, to let, you know, I'm, I always get so nervous when people are like child-led, child-centered, child-whatever, but there is so much wisdom in you know, we need to listen to our children. And in these instances in particular, if they're wanting to do something, you know, we as parents can put the wis the wisdom behind it, but to say, yeah, how can we say yes to this, right? How can we say yes to this? Because this is really important. That's good. Well, yeah, definitely recommend. So you guys can go grab uh, Jen and she wrote it with her husband, Josh. We definitely want to acknowledge uh, Joshua Hook. He, he, uh, he's written a few books. So they did this together. It was a work of collaboration. Everybody's favorite word around here uh, mm -hmm. between Jen and Josh Hook and uh, Joshua. I don't actually know him. I keep saying Josh, but I don't actually know the guy. Um, but at any rate, uh, Thriving Families, it's it's on Amazon right now. We have it linked in the show notes. So definitely go check it out and, and pick up some good wisdom from that book. And uh, speaking of good books, uh, I have a recommendation. Phil, That's you want to hear my recommendation? Uh, I do. Of course I do. I always want to hear recommendations. I don't understand most of your recommendations, but I definitely want to hear it. <laughs> You'll understand this one. I, I, I think you're familiar with this one. Um, and, you know, this, this, this might sound uh, a little odd, uh, but my recommendation is the Bible, uh, but not just, not just the Bible. Uh, obviously, when we talk about recommendations, uh, who, who has influenced uh, people on the podcast more than anybody else? God, Jesus. Yeah, right. uh, what book has meant the most to you? The Bible. Like these are the most common answers. And when helping hurts, of course, we got to throw right, that in. Of course. Uh, well, but, I often said, except uh, other than the Bible, except too, for the Bible, like, exactly. That's you know, right. We try like, to create yeah. that caveat. Yeah. But my recommendation is the Bible, and and not just, but not just like the Bible. Of course, everybody should read the Bible, whatever you got, whatever translation, whatever language. Uh, but I actually received a Bible at Christmas time. I know it's January right now. People are maybe getting into their 2023 reading plans for scripture. Uh, I received a Bible. Um, it's just the New Testament, uh, but 
It is the First Nations version translation of the Bible. My wife got it for me on Christmas Day. And this is what I've been reading through January during my you know devotion time and, and my prayer time in the evenings. And uh, it is... It's awesome. You know, one of the things that we talked about with Jen is, you know, multiculturalism and and recognizing different expressions of the church. Um, And obviously, for those that are in the U.S., where a lot of our listeners are, um, you know, we have a pretty (laughs) sordid would be too soft of a word, but we have a sordid history when it comes to... um, to colonizing and and uh, populating in a way the the U.S. But um, you know, indigenous communities were massacred in a lot of ways and forced into really terrible situations. And I mean, it was just so hard. And at the same time, the gospel took root in those First Nations as well. And this uh, this translation of the Bible, uh, which again, I, as I mentioned, it's just a New Testament, is so moving when you consider the history, you know, of of indigenous populations here in in North America. And um, I just love. I, I wish I had it in front of me. I would read something like the Beatitudes or the Lord's Prayer or something because it's just so moving. But they use, you know, um, when when God when Jesus talks about. Uh, the kingdom of God. He talks about the good road. You know, when he when they do the loaves and fishes, they talk about the fry bread. You know, uh, as people are aware, um, the way that indigenous communities in the U.S. Uh, have their names, they're often uh, almost like like we don't just say like like David or you know Phil or whatever. It it's it's a phrase. And if you guys are familiar, I mean, words actually like names actually do mean something. But like throughout this, throughout the scripture, Jesus is called creator sets free. Like that's his name, you know? So it's just, it's just awesome. Like, uh, so, uh, if you guys are, uh, getting into your January readings, um, and you're on Amazon and you're just grabbing thriving families, uh, maybe, uh, maybe look up the first nation version of, of scripture, uh, of the new Testament. I know I'm getting a lot out of it and, and it's been, it's like one of those, like I have I'm an American. I have probably, I'm an American Christian. So I have probably more Bibles than I, you know, <laughs> rightfully need, but it was one of those things when I opened it and saw what it was that it really touched me because it's just a, a beautiful expression of, of, uh, of a cultural expression of, of scripture and of the church, uh, that I just really value. So that would be my recommendation. And, uh, it That's was, awesome. yeah, yeah. I'm in and Matthew right say, now. It's awesome. I would say also any, Anything like that, like when I was in Hawaii, we got the Pigeon Bible. Mm. You know, Wycliffe has done an amazing job, and other Bible translators, the Illumination um, Project, like they're they are translating. And so wherever you are, if especially if you're in, you know, a country uh, other than the United States, or you know, if if you are in the United States but you're from another, like make sure that you are reading um, what the people are reading. And uh, the Pigeon Bible was fascinating. It was, it's funny, too, you know, just seeing some of the, like you said, some of the ways it's just really cool, some of the names, some of the different things they're talking about, how they talk about it. Um, and sometimes it's like a commentary where you can, you're, you're reading it and you're going, oh, my gosh, I never thought of it that way. And, you know, we hear some nicknames like the Sons of Thunder, right, with right. the disciples, but we don't. You know, but even with that, like usually we just read over it. We don't think, oh, why, why that name? What does that mean? Yeah. What's the, you know, what's the, what's behind that name? I mean, e- and w- even when, you know, I think it's obvious sometimes, you know, like Jacob and Israel, that whole thing, and Saul, Saul to Paul, like what, why, what's that mean? You know, and then right. Simon to Peter, like we usually know what that means, right? Petra with the rock, but a lot of people don't. They just go, oh, change his name. Right. And um, but the names do mean something. So I I love it. Love it. All right. So we will finish up with that. And as always, we uh, are hoping, hoping, praying that you're taking what you learn. Hopefully we're just not doing this and you're listening and laughing and moving on with your day. Um, I hope that you're taking this and you're thinking about it. You're chewing on it. You're grabbing the book. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're checking out this book that Brandon was just talking about and, and you're using all of it to, to help you understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.